Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. Love having you here and love the conversation that I have with my guest today. We're going to talk about leadership. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not a leader. Like, I don't lead a company, I don't have employees. Uh, you're a leader. We are all leaders. First and foremost, we lead ourselves. And second, there are definitely people in our life that we lead. So, we're going to talk today about how to lead and live from the heart rather than just the head. My guest today is Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. She is a prominent leadership expert and a highly experienced business leader in her own right. She's been a CEO. She's been in the Air Force. She's a deputy chair. She's an adjunct professor. She has a PhD in leadership. She's wicked smart and she really is authentic and comes from her heart. And that's a beautiful combination. Before we dive in, I want to thank my sponsor for this week, Organifi, and tell you about a really cool thing that they're doing right now. So the whole month they are celebrating National Pumpkin Day. I didn't know there was a National Pumpkin Day. Pretty exciting. Love pumpkins. Athena loves pumpkins. We got a lot of pumpkins in our house. So you can get free shipping on all your orders with gold pumpkin spice. I'm going to tell you about gold pumpkin spice in a second through the entire month of November. So I don't know if you've had Organifi Gold. It comes in the original flavor, chocolate flavor, and now pumpkin spice flavor. Mm, so yummy. It's a way to ease your body into a calm, relaxed state with nine soothing superfoods and one delicious nighttime tea. I drink it during the day too. Some of the highlights, reishi mushroom, known as the grounding mushroom, lemon balm. Oh, lemon balm is so good for our nervous system. Turmeric, great antioxidant and passion flower, which promotes relaxation and helps us cope with stress. Hey, we could all use that, right? So go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over it, or use promo code over it at checkout and get 20% off of your order. Again, that's Organifi.com slash over it, or use promo code over it at checkout. Celebrate National Pumpkin Day. Get your gold pumpkin spice. It is so yummy. And snuggle in for this holiday season. Organifi.com slash over it. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. Kirsten, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here with you. Well, we'll be talking about your book and the world tour you've been on and everything that you've been up to, but I want to start by just talking about you. You know, for someone to write a book on leadership, I'm sure that you've had your own journey with leadership. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey and what you, what inspires you to become an expert on leadership? Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, I guess I'm a little unusual in that, you know, when I talk about my career history, it has been so diverse and there's no way I could have imagined, you know, when I left school that I'd end up doing what I'm doing. Yet, everything seems to have been for a reason. And I think every decision I've made, conscious and unconscious, has sort of led me here. So it's funny how the world works, as I'm sure you know. But I um, started my career in the military and so a long way from what I'm doing now. And I was only 17 and went and joined the Air Force and went to our academy here in Australia where there were hardly any women at all. And it was a time when leadership in particular at that academy was pretty brutal and it's been the subject of much review and investigation since then um, just for how cadets were treated. If you imagine all those Hollywood movies of yelling and screaming, sort of that was it. Mm. But I was really lucky that even in that environment, you know, I managed to do really well and I ended up graduating 
valedictorian or ducks of my graduating class of men and women, which I feel really proud of. But there's, you know, a real dark side to that too. I sort of learned early on that to get along and to succeed, I needed to just fit in. And I hoped no one noticed us female at all in particular for many, many years. That has completely changed. But it's interesting how those early experiences of leadership and success kind of shape what you think is right. And there was a real culture of silence there and, you know, everything sort of stayed within the cadet corps. And um, that's something I've, you know, been actively now writing about in terms of trying to undo that for organisations. But I digress. So I was in the military and then I studied law and went off to uh, worked with a corporate law firm. Um, I then became a CEO of a group of psychologists. And so that was another incredibly different experience for me, having been, you know, in such hierarchical um, environments, really. And uh, psychologists obviously love feedback and giving feedback, and it was a real feedback culture. So learning to lead in that environment has really stood me in good stead for what I've done since, which has largely been sitting on company boards, Um, some really large publicly listed companies. I uh, spent some time chairing our Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, through some really public high profile challenges it was going through. And so I had to learn through influencing people in that situation. It's quite different from leading an organisation. But that's all my own personal experience. I guess I'm unique, I suppose, in that I also went off and did a PhD in leadership because leadership, I think, for me has been part of my DNA. You know, I mentioned I was only 17. When I was at the academy, I did my first degree and did a research thesis in leadership. And so it amazes me that for 30 years or so, I've obviously been interested in it. Uh, And so here I, I now can bring it all together. So that practiced experience as a leader where you know, you know, it's a theory might say A, but in real life, B is the only thing that's going to work. And uh, I really understand that sort of pragmatic approach. But I also believe that having the research and the data is essential for helping us sort of learn and progress about what we can do differently as well. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I love hearing people's story because it reminds us it's never a straight line to no. who are. And and so often you hear, especially I've got young daughters, 23 and 21, and, you know, they imagine that the decision they're going to make now is the one that's going to lock them in forever. And I try mm-hmm. and, you know, encourage any young people or anyone at any stage in life. It's just a point in time and it doesn't yeah. lock you into anything. Yeah, it's so true. Um, I have one of the things that I do is a lot of keynote speaking and often in the corporate market. And one of my talks is leadership from the inside out and it's talk on leadership. And when we're talking to people that may want to come in, they're like, oh, well, we like the leadership thing, but it's going to be all levels of people there, not just our COOs. (laughs) We ever have like an executive then, you know, and what I say to them is everyone's a leader. Everyone's Uh, a leader. And so I'd love you to speak to that. It does because you said you're a natural leader. Do you believe everyone's a leader or that certain people have just more natural leadership capabilities or is it more, how do we define yeah. leadership? 
Oh, all of the above. How long have we got? <laughs> I'll, I'll <laughs> limit my comments to the headlines. Absolutely do I believe everyone's a leader. And in fact, that's one of the key themes of my latest book. And I use some examples of like a supermarket checkout operator and, and different type. I've interviewed all sorts of leaders, including those we wouldn't traditionally sort of think of as leaders, because we all lead in our families, in our communities and in our workplaces in, in the impact that we have on people around us through obviously the words we use, the choices we make, the behaviours we role model. So I'm firmly a believer that everyone is a leader. And I too, like you, I'll give keynotes and someone will, you know, be spending a lot of time telling me what sort of level of leader they are. And I'm trying to explain it's not really relevant <laughs> to any of the message that I'm sharing because it equally applies. Um, in terms of um, the second part of your question, which was about ability, I guess I think all of us have the capacity to be effective leaders. So I always like to think of it a little like, I don't know, a hundred metre um you know, sprinter at the Olympics who, you know, I, I could practice every single day for the rest of my life or when I was younger and I was never going to get to the Olympics because I just didn't have the predisposed natural disposition to it. But I got better and better and I would get better and better. I think that's the same with leaders. I think there are some people who through their environment they're brought up in or the way, you know, they're, they're sort of um, – approach life, uh, do have a natural disposition to being more effective as a leader without as much effort. However, uh, I definitely think that all of us have the capacity to be just as good or, or better by really um, using those leadership muscles that we've all got sitting there waiting to be practised. I love everything that you said. And what came up for me when you were talking is that we're all natural leaders. We just have different styles of it. You know, like I think that some people are better at leading hundreds and hundreds of people. And some people are better at leading in a one-on-one -on -one capacity. And some people are better at leading maybe in more creative things. And some people are better at leading in more pragmatic, logical things, but it's all leadership. So maybe this would be a good time to define. I'd love to hear your definition of what yeah. is leadership. Well, it's certainly not what you find in the dictionary. And, you know, when you look at what either the Webster Dictionary or the Oxford Dictionary, it's all about followers. And, you know, right. I think that's such an old-fashioned notion and we really need to update how we define. And in my book, Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership, I spend the first part of the book really asking us to rethink what leadership means in our modern context. Because for me, it's all of us because, I mean, I'm often asked to be a leader, do you have to be a, a good leader? And, you know, unfortunately not. There's people who make awful mm -hmm. decisions that have an awful impact on people, but they're still leading. And sadly, in their world, perhaps they're very effective as a leader. But it, it's that context question again. And that means that all of us are having an impact, positive or negative. And I think Anyone who can impact someone else in any capacity, as I said earlier, through their words, their choices, their behaviour is leading and has a choice to leave a positive or a negative impact in their wake. And I get many people pushed back who can only think of leadership in very traditional terms, you know, being at the top of 
the organisational chart or having that power or authority. Mm -hmm. And I understand why they think that way because for centuries it's been ingrained in us. I mean, at school we only ever learnt about kings and queens and explorers and titans of industry, you know, those people who were exceptional and at the very top of the tree, whereas in recent years we just know that there's leaders amongst us doing things that impact, you know, sometimes many, many people's lives that go unheralded and that we don't sort of acknowledge or celebrate as leaders. And I think that needs to change. I agree. How do we change it? (laughs) I think we talk (laughs) about it and I think we acknowledge the role models around us who we wouldn't normally do so. Back in um, 2017, I started a a campaign called Celebrating Women, actually, and um, it got far bigger than I ever expected and and became quite viral and led to my first book. But it became um, because I believe that every woman is a role model and I wanted to sort of improve my social media news feeds from how depressing they can be by just sharing the stories of ordinary women. And I managed to celebrate two women every day for an entire year and ended up celebrating 757 women from 37 Mm -hmm. countries. And every single one of those women were women we really would never normally hear from cleaners and retirees and nurses and Mm. all sorts of women and they are all leaders in their own way and as I wrote my book I sort of had in my mind a single mum at home you know trying to start a small business on Etsy (laughs) that just making (laughs) choices for her family she is a leader I just refuse to believe she's not Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree Well, you mentioned you have two daughters. How do we teach our children leadership? Well, I think we role model what good leadership looks like and we help them to make choices for themselves because as we know, in the end, you know, we can only influence people to be able to make those really good choices when we're not present, especially as parents. And I experienced this recently. My youngest has been backpacking through Europe. And for anyone who's got a child who's gone and done that, it's rather terrifying because they're a Mm -hmm. long way from home. And you really have to hope that all of those good leadership lessons you've taught them for the last 21 years are going to work. And because they're going to be making choices in sometimes difficult situations when you're not present. And to me, I think that's the skill we can teach our children to make really good choices for themselves and for other people and to understand the impact that they're having um, when they do so. And, I, you know, ultimately that's all we can do as parents is to really educate and set our kids up to be those kinds of leaders that we want to be led by in the future. And, um, I, you know, you never know whether or not you've succeeded, but fortunately my daughter returned home safe and well this week yeah, after a year good. away. So oh. I feel one KPI was ticked. <laughs> She's okay. And a huge relief, I'm sure, on oh, so many levels. Yeah, 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 no. So your book's titled Head and Heart. Let's talk about head-based leadership and heart-based leadership. What's the distinction and how do they work together? 
Well, it's obviously a metaphor, clearly. Mm -hmm. It's funny, I spoke to a group um, recently and I had one very helpful, in inverted commas, person point out that they didn't think this is how the heart actually worked. And I'm like, thanks very much for that. I get it, but it's a great metaphor because people understand intuitively what it means. And what I wanted to understand through research, though, is what are the attributes that make up head and heart-based leadership? Um, because I am a researcher at heart and I didn't want to write a a book on anecdote. And so head-based leadership on my research are four different attributes and they're curiosity and not just curiosity for some things but for anything, wisdom, which is around decision-making and gathering data and evidence and weighing up risk and reward, Uh, perspective, which is particularly important from my research, and this is reading a room and obviously not just a physical room perhaps, but your organisation or your industry. But importantly, what came out of my research is that people who can lead with perspective also notice who's missing from the room. So it was highly correlated with empathy, which we'll get to in a moment. And then the fourth attribute of leading with the head was capability. And this is all around growth mindset and obviously not just being capable, but believing you're capable. And the thing with the head-based attributes is that Most of us are pretty comfortable there. It's what we're rewarded for at school. It's what we get promoted on. It's, you know, that's really tangible, measurable skills that we can box up and write a policy on. And, you know, it Mm. just feels safe. So they're really important. And obviously all of us have these skills, but some of us live in the head-based space much more than perhaps balance would determine we should, particularly for modern leaders. And so then I wanted to understand, well, what are the heart-based attributes? And again, there's four because it's all about balance. And the first is humility. And this is really around intellectual humility and understanding we don't have all the answers. Self-awareness, which I know your listeners, you know, would be particularly strong at really understanding that impact we're having on people. Courage to speak up for what we believe in, even in the face of pressure, not to. And Mm -hmm. then finally, empathy and obviously understanding those lived experiences beyond our own. And the art of modern leadership in my mind, is really knowing which of those eight attributes are needed and when and how you Mm -hmm. get that mix that's most effective. And for many people, I I mentioned just earlier that they live in that head-based attributes. There's a lot of us that live in the heart side as well, and neither is helpful. Um, Neither is balanced. And I think you know, as much as poor old accountants and engineers often cop it for, you know, being very head-based, so too are many not-for-profit and charitable leaders I deal with. And they're wonderful people, yet they're not able to necessarily, you know, really excel because they're not as comfortable in some of those other spaces. So it's all about knowing what's needed and when. So let's say, let's just give an example here. Let's say we have someone listening, maybe a coach, for example, who's building their own business and or has their own business, but just it isn't getting to the level that they want. And they've got the hard stuff down. They're, they're empathetic. Yeah. They can really consider other people. But the head is a little tougher stepping into those <laughs> qualities. How would you coach that person? 
Yeah. And it's so lovely to chat with you and your audience because I'm often asked the exact reverse. The opposite, <laughs> <And so> yes. <laughs> I know. And they're equally terrified. How do I get into the heart space? It's, mm-hmm. you know, ter- whereas I'm a bit more like you and your listeners. I'm very comfortable in the heart. I think it's that recognition of, get- well, firstly, getting feedback. And I can imagine coaches listening are just really comfortable with that. But I think it's valuing what's in that headspace because I mentioned earlier, I uh, worked with psychologists and they too love living in, in the heart. The whole business was around how we can improve the lives of others. And I had to, as a CEO, really try and move them into the head space to say, yes, it is. And so it's not a but or, or an or, it's an and. We obviously need to be able to be a profitable business and we need to be able to service our clients and we need to be able to build the business, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's really creative ways, I think, if you're a heart-based leader, that you can explore what the head-based side of your context in your business looks like by getting feedback from those who are more comfortable there. And I was able to sort of do it in reverse and find out, well, how do I get this group of wonderful heart-based leaders feeling excited about, you know, very Mm head-based, tangible, measurable targets? And I had to get incredibly creative in how I did that. And it was a real challenge for me. And so I understand for those listening, it is a challenge, but you don't need to do it alone. And I would go and find an ally that you work with or that you know, or a mentor or your own coach and say, this is the outcome I'm trying to get. I'm thinking of this really in a fairly unbalanced way. How can I, you know, really draw on um, risk and reward and, and data and evidence to help me get there as an example? Mm. Can I just mm. point out yeah, to Christine that, yeah. that any anyone listening, I, I created a head and heart leader scale with one of the Australian universities and 17,000 people have done it since uh, January and it's free to do. You'll get your own personalised report. So anyone listening or any of their clients, anyone, you can just send to headheartleader.com and uh, you'll get an instant report and it's exciting to see how many people are really getting behind it and wanting to understand exactly that question you just asked well where are the areas that I need to focus on and you might actually be quite surprised I love that I love that we'll link that in the show notes as well I love taking surveys and quizzes I'll I'll totally take it I love analyzing myself so I think everyone does so yeah (laughs) it's very easy headheartleader.com headheartleader.com great can you talk a little bit about leadership style flexing like Knowing when and how to style flex in certain situations, because I think we can get attached sometimes to a certain leadership style or think something really is going to work or our one way at work, and then we need to be a different way at home. How can that be something that is not stressful? Um, And how can we bring more awareness to that? Well, it's such a good question. And this is that task attribute I spoke about perspective, really reading the room, knowing what style is going to be fit for purpose. Now, you mentioned between home and work. I I am a believer that I think modern leaders integrate the leader they are at home and at work and in the community. So, you are the same person in essence because I compare that to when I was starting my career, particularly when I was at a law firm and I'd put on a suit in the morning and I was quite a different person at work than I was at home and it never sat well with me. It just was incongruous and I never felt I could 
you know, be myself. So I think you do need to find who you are across all aspects as a leader. But then within that, you're absolutely spot on. I was a very different leader in the military to the type of leader that was effective in a law firm, to the type of leader that was effective, you know, with psychologists and then on boards. And you do need to really as I said, read the room to understand, well, what's going to have the most impact in this scenario? And then even within that, the tempo can change. So, I mentioned I'd been chair of a board during a very high-pressure situation and essentially it was a crisis that I had to lead through. And so, whereas, you know, I might normally be very consultative and take time to gather everyone's views, in a crisis, you don't really have that opportunity at all. And in fact, Mm. you reduce the number of people that you you seek your decisions, but you need to understand what is going to be fit for purpose in your situation. And the only way to do that is trial and error. And that's the only way I think I've learned over years and through painful experiences of getting it wrong. And I interview a woman called Pip Marlowe in the book who led Salesforce. And uh, Mm. she talks about her experience of having been um, always in the tech industry. She went from Microsoft to a bank to Salesforce. And at the bank, she sort of misread what was going to be effective because obviously financial services, very different to leading in a tech company. And for some of us, we all go through that where we realize actually the impact I was hoping I was going to have just isn't working. But for many, you've got time to calibrate and to get feedback and to understand, okay, well, what is going to work in this situation? Mm -hmm. For people that do lead other people, especially in a work environment, we talked a little bit about parenting. How, because I, what, one thing that I saw back when I did a lot more corporate consulting than I do now, one thing that I saw is leaders, even leaders that were really well liked and were doing well in their role, were great at leading people, but not so great at teaching the people they led to Mm. be leaders. Mm. So, how do leaders create leaders? And why are they afraid to sometimes? <laughs> Do you know, I, I would put myself in that bucket if I'm honest. It's mm. interesting. You learn over time what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I've never considered myself to be particularly good at teaching or, um, yeah, understanding how to best um, – it's not coach isn't the right word. One-on-one, I'm okay. But yeah, I understand that question is such a good one because again, that self-awareness, you need to understand what am I good at and what do I need to bring Mm -hmm. some other people in to help with? I think the idea of coaching and, and thinking of yourself as a coach rather than as a leader is incredibly helpful. And Microsoft has done that well with their uh, coach model care framework that Satya Nadella has put in, where it really, across an organisation, encourages every leader to think of themselves as a coach. And so uh, that's something that's ingrained in their culture. There's a, a thing I coined um, maybe more than 10 years ago now that I still use as a tool. And maybe this is just a little thing that people can use, but I call it the word to wisdom ratio. And I know for leaders, you might go into a meeting with your team and uh, they all sit there quietly because you've really educated them that you're going to come up with the answers anyway. And so 
you end up coming up with the answers and you're doing all the talking and coming up with that suggestion. In that situation, your word to wisdom ratio, in my opinion, is not very healthy because we want to have a word to wisdom ratio where we're actually saying the least possible to get the best outcome because they are opportunities for others to come up with a solution. Even if you know it, you're coaching other people through great questions and through um, encouragement and, and, and just allowing that space. And so thinking about it in those terms and really, you know, weighing up your word to wisdom ratio is one way you can make sure you're coaching people rather than telling. Mm, I love that. So I haven't read your book yet. One of the things that I see as a huge pattern in people that I coach, even in myself sometimes, is thinking, like buying into the belief that something along the lines of, if I want something done right, I've got to do it myself, Mm. or it's just easier if I do it myself. And sometimes I convince myself that's just me handling things. Yep. How much is that belief a pitfall of actually effective heart-head leadership, modern leadership? Well, I do think it's a huge pitfall unless you're making a conscious decision to do it because it's a crisis, because there's an extraordinary situation as to why in this moment you've read the room that your most effective way to lead is to actually lead by example and and do it. Mm -hmm. But they're the rarer occasions. And, you know, I mentioned that example about using the word to wisdom ratio. It's linked to thinking you're the smartest person in the room. If you think... Um, no one else will do it as well as me. I've seen this 10,000 times. It's just quicker to just do it myself. Right. You know, I'm sure the outcome will be fine, but you are not someone who is coaching anyone else to be able to lead. And that is our core job is to leave a whole family tree of leaders behind us. We are not there to just be an island and to lead through life being the best possible person um, or leader that succeeds individually. I think we are there to continually think about the impact we're having on others. And it's a short-sighted view anyway, because in that moment, yes, that particular issue, you might just fix it that day instead of having to wait for a quorum of people to, you know, have a view on it. But long-term, you are going to need all of the skills that come from collaborating on solutions. And there'll be a time a week later where, in fact, you will wish that you had people Mm. there skilled and able to help you. But instead, you've trained them almost to not even bother to try. And that is a failure of leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And it can build resentment, especially if you're doing this in your home with your family, with your spouse and your kids or whoever you live with. Yeah. And here's me admitting there's a a thing in my book I call, um, my family has a term for me and they refer to it as mum's disease. And I don't have a disease. I've got nothing wrong with me, but I do have a tendency to hear the first part of what they're about to say and then, you know, start to already think of a solution and worse, verbalize that solution before they've even finished (laughs) speaking. And we all do it. We all do it. But it is kryptonite, um, you know, to being a curious leader, particularly because you're making assumptions. But your family, you know, just they just say it now. They'll go, ah, mum's disease, and they stop listening to me. So Mm. it's a really great form of feedback. But we do do it. We all do it. 
I saw something on Instagram because um, Instagram like knows I'm a parent now and just <laughs> my algorithm is all, all things. And it was talking about, a woman was talking about, and I can't remember who it was. I'm sorry, I can't credit it. She was talking about how she's teaching her like children, especially her boys. There's no chores. She's teaching them how to notice what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So instead of like making a chore list of like, Andy takes out the trash and Julie folds the laundry and like whatever. Like it's more what uh, teaching them a noticing of what needs to be done and acting on it. Because one of the things she's experienced, especially, you know, as a woman in the household is the mental load of not only having to like do stuff, but track everything that needs to be done. So her kids come to her now and be like, mom, we're running low on toilet paper. I'm going to go to Amazon and order it. Instead of the toilet paper comes and the kid unpacks it and puts it away. It's like teaching them every step of it. So I'm just wondering if you have any comments on that and how we can both in our parenting and in our leadership, like teach people how to notice. Cause that's a big thing for me in leadership. That's really, really important is like knowing what needs to be done before it needs to be done. Not, not just, in, not just in a preemptive way, but just in the like, like knowing what needs to happen way. Um, um, I, as a mother of grown children, how old are the children in that particular lady's life? I think they were like eight to 12. Oh gosh. Well, I, I'm somewhat cynical. I love to know how she gets through the teenage years with them noticing <laughs> that toilet paper needs uh, refreshing. And if she has cracked the code, oh my goodness, she deserves She's all the accolades. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Examples like that, they're fabulous, but I find that they're not realistic in that none of us are perfect parents. None of us are perfect leaders. I miss stuff all the time. And, you know, me preaching on how you can make sure you never miss anything feels disingenuous um, from my perspective, because part of being a modern leader is being human and being totally comfortable with the fact that, you know, I'm, you know, you're going to make a mistake today. Uh, And, you know, okay, I've done it again. Here we go. What have I learned from it? How can I sort of prevent this exact mistake happening uh, in the future? I think the idea of noticing what's needed, absolutely. I mean, gosh, that would be nirvana. I guess in my life, I think that's you know, something that is next level. I, I would just be happy for people to acknowledge their leaders at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, let alone noticing how they, you know, can um, preempt issues that are about to arise. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to your very first question um, when you were talking about, you know, do I think everyone is a leader? I'm still amazed at the number of people who don't accept that they are a leader or they don't recognize they're a leader, Mm -hmm. even though they're clearly in a position of making choices and decisions and impacting their families or them at work. And that is where I'm really focused at, you know, wanting people to feel uh, okay with understanding that they are a leader, whether they recognize it or not they are leading. And so that consciousness um, raising around knowing that you are going to have an impact, I think really helps people to accept that, all right, let's start to notice what those decisions are meaning and the way I'm speaking to people, the way I'm asking for things to be done. All of that is going to have an impact, whether on my family or my colleagues. So I may as well try and raise my awareness of of what I'm doing. Mm, Yeah. Let's talk about repair. 
a little bit because one of the biggest things from a relationship or psychological perspective and an attachment or relationships or safety is repair. No one's perfect. No one's perfect in a relationship. No one's a perfect parent, but it is repair that creates that sense of safety and security and trust. And I'd love to talk about repair with leadership. So it's going to be, I think, different. Well, maybe, maybe not, but I assume it's going to be a little different in like a family intimate so uh, place, like repairing with your children in terms of like not being leading them through something in the best way possible versus repairing with your staff. So let's start more in the work front. Mm. Let's say as a leadership, as a leader, you make a mistake. What is the best way to repair? How much ownership do we take? How much going over what we did wrong is valuable? I think 100% ownership. If it's your mistake, you need to own it and don't even try and, you know, palm off 10, 20% of it to something else. You might be able to explain why you made the mistake, but it's your mistake. I think um, wallowing in um, analysis paralysis of your own mistake and asking everyone, you know, to spend time reflecting on your mistake, I think that gets into self-pity almost and that's unhelpful. Mm -hmm. So there's this um, really important balance. I think the timeliness of owning your mistake is the other critical aspect. So if you know you've made a mistake, we all get that pit in our stomach of realising that it's happened and, you know, wanting to crawl up and jump into a hot corner and hope no or one's time noticed. <laughs> yeah, a time machine. But it happened. It has happened. Mm-hmm. The quicker you can acknowledge it to those that are impacted or those that um, are going to notice anyway, I think the better. And you don't want mm-hmm. them to necessarily be, you know, thinking about it behind without hearing from you first and so I try and fess up very very early and in fact there's something in my own life a work thing and I'm thinking oh gosh I have done a I have made a mistake on something and it had been on my mind overnight and I'd been thinking about it and then I thought all right I know the first thing the morning I made sure I contacted the people who I thought it may impact I didn't even know if it was going to be a mistake you know one of those things you're worrying about Mm -hmm. and totally owned it and it's amazing how a it's a trust builder with the people that you work with because they're going to know anyway so it's not as though um, if you never talk about it no one's going to notice it's much better to build trust and to be creating an environment of feedback where you're owning it so early that people feel more than comfortable to say, yep, no problem. All right, well, we'll deal with it when it comes up. Thank you for letting me know. Perhaps in future, you know, X, Y, Z. And you're like, yep, okay, no problem. And off you go. I think those kind of situations where you try and hope they don't notice or you wait until someone's noticed to own it, all of that's too late. It's much easier for you and for others to own it really early. Yeah. And I think the over-apologizing can not create the effect that we want either. They, they totally. Ownership. And also, this is how we're going to do it differently. Like, this is what it, I'm going to do from, from this point forward. Yep. This is how I'm going to rectify as best I can. And I think for leaders too, I've seen really disappointing examples where they might have told their team that they made this mistake, but publicly they'll blame it on someone else or they'll... Um, you know, come up with some excuse or some reason, I think it's just as important that you are consistently owning your mistakes in every context. And that is harder, but it's really important that your team sees 
that you are able to take the brunt of whatever has happened, you know, not just do it when the stakes are lower. When the stakes are high, you still need to own your mistake and you'll build even more trust by doing so. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good tangent to another question. How do we build trust with people? Oh, with time and with patience and with honesty. And you can lose it. You know, you can invest everything for years and you can lose it in an instant, as we know. But what you've got to hope is that you've got a lot of credit in that bank of trust. And then when it's lost, get on top of that straight away with everything we were just talking about. I do think it's... um, creating an environment where people can give you feedback. So having feedback cultures where if you are the formal leader, so you are somewhere senior on the organisational chart and you are able to hear feedback from people, thank them for it, it doesn't mean you take it on, as many of your listeners would already know. You don't need to, you know, change yourself every five minutes because you're getting feedback. But I think you do need to hear it and thank people for the gift and the courage they've had to share it with you. And then perhaps go and test that feedback with others, you know, who want to see you succeed and just ask them what their experience has been. But by being someone that is open to feedback, I think you build an enormous amount of trust with those that you work with and then making sure you've always got their back. And that's what I meant earlier about those high stakes situations, making sure that you are there taking the brunt of some of those challenges as they come along. Because whether we like it or not, if you're in a formal leadership position, that is part of the gig. Yeah. I'd love to talk with you a little bit about the difference between leadership and influence, because this is something that really Mm. concerns me with social media and people having the ability to influence a lot Mm. of people because they have great marketing or they have like a lot of numbers. And oftentimes we think if someone has a large following, then they're trustworthy or, and so oftentimes people that have a lot of influence also have a lot of, by default, ability to lead people, which may not be the best thing. So yeah. I'm not sure what exactly my question is, but I think you get no, it. No, I get it. <laughs> I do saying. get it. Could you speak um, to that a bit? Well, it's a bit like, you know, I said earlier, awful people are still leaders, you know, a gang of youths who are stealing cars, you know, they're leading in that context, but they're making some really bad choices. Now, influencers aren't necessarily making, you know, that kind of terrible choice, but I do think influencers need to recognise their leaders. They're leaders in their community of followers and all of their words have an impact. All of their decisions and their choices have an impact. You know, I watch um, Taylor Swift at the moment, who's taken the world by storm, obviously, and no one would deny she is a leader, not just of her enormous business that she has behind her, but of millions and millions and millions of fans around the world who follow her every choice. Now, she may not have gone into music thinking that was going to happen, but it does and has and she's a leader and I think it would be important for any influencers it it doesn't matter if you've only got a hundred followers or you know a hundred million you're still impacting the people who are seeing what you say and the choices that you're making and you know that's why it comes back to this idea everyone is a leader but very few people often realize it because we've had it ingrained in us that it's a corporate sort of 
job in the org chart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for those of us that are consumers of mm. social media, for example, what's a good way to like ask ourselves, like, should I be allowing this person to lead me in terms of <laughs> making a decision or buying a product or I don't know, fill in the blank or are they just influential? I think, I mean, you are the leader in your life and you're going to have inputs from everywhere, whether it's social media or just walking through the mall or your friends or your crazy uncle who's, you know, telling you points of view that, you know, it's a little strange. You know, we have all of those inputs and it comes back again to this balancing your head and your heart. What what feels right to you and read the room? Is this something that's going to resonate with the way you want to live your life? Is it a product you really need? I mean, I trust as leaders, all of us can weigh up those choices. And if we're struggling with that, then again, getting feedback in our personal lives from our friends and family is really important as to how we're going. And even from your kids, I know, um, we were talking about how you own your mistakes, certainly with my own children through my life. There have been times where I've said to them, you know, I did not get that right or, you know, I've picked them up from school and I've had a stressful day and I'm not really listening to their endless stories about what had happened during the day and I've realised that later and gone back to them and said, you know, I really could have done better and I, I am really interested in what you've got to say. Can we start over, you know, I don't get it right mm. all the time or those kinds of ways of thinking about your impact is relevant in every single part of your life. Yes. And I think as long as you've got that sort of first principle idea of I'm going to make mistakes, it's not the end of the world, but I need to rectify it, it doesn't matter where you are. And it doesn't matter if you get influenced by someone and you buy something on Instagram yeah. that you really don't need because I can assure you I've done that many times. Oh, <laughs> and, and then I think, oh, what was I thinking? But I'm responsible for that choice, you know, not right. the influencer. It's me that's right. gone and bought it and decided I need it because I want to feel beautiful or whatever it is that right. flogged right. at me. I can't blame someone else for that. I, I need to take personal responsibility. Well, that's leadership. Right there. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, as we wrap up here, what place I'd love to to start winding down is talking about how leadership is is a privilege and it's not something we're entitled to. Yeah, that's a real view of mine. And again, it comes from this idea that has been ingrained in us that you know, leadership was just for those select few. And over the centuries, it was such a narrow group of people that fell into this sort of great man theory of the 18th century. And frankly, it was mainly men and it was mainly white men, white privileged men that were born into leadership. And I think that has been completely debunked. And we have leaders amongst us, leaders of all shapes and sizes and ethnicities and sexualities and every other lens of diversity. And that is what we need to celebrate. And for anyone listening, you are a leader. It doesn't matter, you know, what you're doing or how many people you're influencing. This is all about you being really conscious of the impact that you're having and the wake you're leaving in your life. Mm, yeah, for yourself and others, because <laughs> we all yeah. have to live with exactly. our own decisions first and foremost. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, this has been so juicy and insightful. Um, you mentioned the quiz that people can go to. Where else can they connect with you? Where can they get the book? 
Yeah, well, the book is on Amazon, though, um, and it's available worldwide, but certainly Amazon US. I'd love to hear how you find it. I'm on all the socials, but particularly LinkedIn and Instagram as Kirsten Ferguson. And you can visit my website, kirstenferguson.com. But otherwise, go to headheartleader.com. I think you'll be really interested to see, you know, where you tend to balance as a head or a heart leader. And um, I can't wait to hear how you find it. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much, Kirsten. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And just thank you for walking the talk of leadership. I love your honesty and just approachability and relatability, because I think sometimes the vision of a leader or stereotypical view of a leader, I have it all together and I always know what's going (laughs) on. (laughs) That is how you don't build trust. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, So thank you for embodying and showing us that we're human. Oh, I mean, leadership is part of being human. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that big a surprise, but yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're busting. We're, we're making a distinction between like a boss and like that authoritative yes. type of person and a, and a true leader, which I think we, especially in today's world, we, we need yeah. to move more and more towards. So thank you for being a voice. Well, thank you, Christine. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>